We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 once again today, so if you want to follow along in your scripture sheet or your Bible or the Pew Bible, it's also going to be on the screen, all the scriptures we'll look at in our time in God's Word today. We're going to pick up the reading at verse 11 of this chapter and look at these four verses that conclude chapter 13. The apostle writes, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So if uh, you were around and listening to the radio in 1970, you remember being asked, over and over again, this question. Does anybody really know what time it is? <laughs> and, and then the follow-up question, does anybody really care? <laughs> For you young kids, that's Solid Gold from Chicago and a song you cannot sing nowadays because we all have smartphones and therefore, we all have access to the exact time, although I'll note some don't seem to care. In our text for today, Paul indicates that the believers to whom he wrote were aware. They did know what time it was, and what time was it? Dinner time? Bedtime? No, no. It was time, he said, to wake up. Now, that's a line I, I would have preferred to put later in the sermon when some of you are going to need it. Uh, but here's, here's, here's where it starts. So, the New Living Translation, by the way, says in our passage, you know how late it is. Time is running out. Say it with me. Wake up, little Susie. Wake up. Uh, there was a little boy living in a house that had a large grandfather, old grandfather clock. And once late at night, he heard the old clock chime, and he used to always enjoy counting the, you know, the, the chimes to discern what time it was. So, so the clock chimes for midnight, but this time he counted, and, and it, it chimed 13 times. And this made him very alarmed, and he jumped out of bed and started running through the house, waking everybody up, saying, it's later than it's ever been before. And curiously, that's the exact point the apostle is making. He says, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And by that word salvation, he's thinking of salvation from this present evil age, not salvation from my personal sin. The final salvation that awaits us as believers is closer now than ever. When, uh, when is Jesus coming back? Well, all my life, I, I've heard that it's uh, 
going to be really, really soon. <laughs> but uh, soon has been pretty slow in coming. This much we do know, this much we know, we are closer to the end of the age than we have ever been before, right? That much <laughs> we can all agree on, and when it comes to end time stuff, that may be the only thing that people tend to agree on. The Scriptures inform us that history is going somewhere. It is progressing. We're not in some kind of endless loop like some religions teach. History is winding down, and the great day is coming, and this fact about the world has implications, moral and spiritual implications. That's what the Spirit of God is telling us here. So, let's look at this for a few minutes. Go back to verse 12, uh, and it says, the night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, you may know that our Lord told us that no one knows the day or the hour of His appearing. But has that stopped people from predicting when Jesus was going to come back? Oh, my, no. Uh, as the year 1000 approached. Many believed the 1,000 years of Revelation 20 were soon to end, and Christ would return at that point. Some people sold their homes. They went on pilgrimages. They stopped working, and they waited. In the 13th century, a guy named Joachim of Flores figured out that the 1260 days of Daniel and Revelation were really years, and that the new order under Christ would begin in 1260 A.D. In Bohemia, a man named Melitz fixed the date between 1365 and 1367. Mother Shipton, a German cult leader, predicted the world would come to an end in 1881. Isaac Newton, a fellow you may have heard of, picked 1715. The famous Greek scholar Bingle predicted the Lord's return in 1836. Edward Irving of Scotland, who had quite a large following, said Jesus would return in 1864. Joanna Southcott figured it to be 1884. The Plymouth Brethren, you've heard of the Plymouth Brethren, arose in England and Ireland about 1830 with a strong emphasis on Christ's return before the turn of the century. And uh, maybe the most famous example of all occurred in the 19th century as a result of the preaching of William Miller, who took Daniel 8.14 as his key verse, and he fixed the date for the return of Christ at midnight. He had it nailed down. Midnight, October 22, 1843. And Miller developed quite an excited following. Thousands of people left crops to spoil in the field, and as the day approached, they climbed up to hilltops and housetops to wait for the rapture. Yeah, they had to wait, Gary, for the rapture. But some people, I guess, wanted to be the first to get up to heaven, so they climbed up on hills expecting. And as midnight approached, there were bonfires and wild celebrations. But guess what? No rapture. Uh, Miller admitted his error. What else could he do? <laughs> but 
he concluded that he was off by only one year. <laughs> he declared there is no possibility of mistake this time, end quote. The remarkable thing is that so many people believed him. From the ashes of the Millerite movement arose the denomination we know of as the Seventh-day Adventists with Ellen G. White as their chief prophetess. Another glaring example of this folly occurred in the ministry of Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who boldly proclaimed that Christ would return in 1914. And when that year came and went, Russell actually claimed, while well, Christ did come back, <laughs> at some point it gets a little humorous, Christ did come back, but he was in hiding due to the wickedness of his people. Now, you would think that we would learn from history, if not from Jesus. But does this kind of stuff still go on today? Well, you better believe it does. There's a fellow named Edgar Wisnant, back where we used to live, had the return of Christ nailed down to within a three-day period in 1987, and many gave him audience. Radio preacher Harold Camping had predicted the return of Jesus on May 21, 2011. Many more will come short of naming a day or a year, but they speak as if there is no way things can continue more than another few years. Certainly not. The audience for such speculations and predictions seems to never run out. But the warning of Christ is to stay away from them. It is not for you to know the day or the hour. Paul wrote this in 2 Tim, or Timothy, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. So it is wise to avoid the dating game. But when we consider the second coming, we are still admonished to stay alert, stay ready for the return of Jesus, whether the Scriptures imply that the Master will return soon, or His return is distant, or His return is simply unknown. They always have the same concluding point, you must be ready. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Jesus says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Two verses later, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Chapter 25, verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And in our passage, Paul speaks of staying awake. Same idea. But how do you stay awake? How do you stay alert? The Great Awakening Cafe is there to help you with that. Thank the Lord for the Great Awakening. But how do you stay alert? What does that mean? Do you keep prophecy charts uh, posted on the wall in your bedroom and update them weekly? Is that what it means to stay alert, to be ready for the return of Christ, brothers and sisters? It has nothing to do with knowing the when. It has everything to do with knowing the who, the who who is our Savior, and then living as we are called to live in the now. Readiness to meet the Lord means, first of all, well, it first of all means faith in Christ. Then it means moral purity, which is what Paul talks about in our passage today, because we know our Lord may come. He's going to come to us, or we may, we may go to Him 
at any point, we must hold firmly on to Christ and not give ourselves over to the lust of the flesh. That's the point. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us the same thing. It says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Three verses later, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. I love 1 John 3. Beloved, we are now children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. So to be a people who are fit and ready to greet our Lord, to be a bride that is pure and lovely for her husband. We are called of God to pursue this holiness of life and conduct, walking in the ways of the Lord in body, mind, and spirit. That's how you stay alert. And that's why every morning when we awaken, it's good to remind ourselves of the battle that we are in, and it's good to get dressed. There's more than one way to get dressed. You may want to put on a shirt and pants, but certainly you want to put on Jesus and his armor of light because for each day there is a battle waiting for you. This reference to the prophetic timetable is offered in the context with uh, in context here with reference to the spiritual war in which we find ourselves. So verse 12 says, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, the armor of light, <laughs> uh, that, that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Uh, light represents holiness. God is light. Armor of light seems like it'd be metaphorical for spiritual armor. And you know about that from Ephesians 6 and the, the uh, weapons that God gives us and the spiritual armor that is provided by, by God. We are in a continual conflict with the forces of darkness. And let me ask you this. What is the location of that battle? That spiritual conflict, where does it take place? It is in you. It is in you. A Christian worldview teaches that the essential struggle in this world, it's not external to us. It's not military. It's not cultural. It is not with other people or other forces in your world. It is personal and it is internal. It is the battle with the tempter who seeks to destroy your life with your cooperation. That is how it most often happens. We make choices that rob us of joy. We make choices that rob us of peace, that destroy our lives and our witness. And interestingly, the apostle makes note here of what may be the big three. When we look at how people wreck their lives, I, can think, uh, I cannot think of anything that compares to these three that are mentioned in our text. They are substance abuse, sexual sin, and rage. Substance abuse, 
sexual sin, and rage. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy. So let's spend just a moment on on each of those. The first mention there is substance abuse. Drunkenness is the most prevalent, but there are other drugs that could fall under the same heading. The parties of this world, as you well know, are centered on these very things. Many don't think you can have a party without intoxicants, right? And many there be who are party animals. They live for the weekend when they can let go. So let me ask, how big a problem in our world is drunkenness, alcohol abuse? How big a problem is that? So big that for a decade or so in our nation, not too many years ago, alcohol was prohibited. It was illegal because folks could see how devastating that was to individuals and to families and to the social fabric. In some sub-communities in our country and around the world, it is the dominant and devastating reality. Drug abuse of all sorts is a killer in so many ways. Now, I think you know that the Bible does not prohibit all use of alcohol, not at all, but the warnings against abuse, they are considerable. Our passage is one. Ephesians 5 says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The Proverbs have much to say. Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Chapter 23, my child, listen and be wise. Keep your heart on the right course. Do not carouse with drunkards or feast with gluttons. Verse 29, who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Don't answer out loud. Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Just don't start. (laughs) Don't start. Beth and I are not, we're not teetotalers. We aren't, but we're close. <laughs> uh, part of that comes from watching our own fathers wreck their lives and our families by means of alcohol abuse. Part of it comes from watching so many others do the same thing. It just grieves me that so many marriages are stressed by this problem. Listen, gang, marriage is hard enough. don't add intoxicants to the mix. Just don't go here. And if you have already gone there and you've gotten hooked, 
make it priority one in your life to get free by the grace and power of the gospel. Free from these addictions. And Paul will tell us how. Stay tuned. Then he mentions sexual sins. Anybody, uh, anybody wreck their souls on these shores? Oh, my. In uh, April, we had a uh, phone chat with our daughter in Florida. Very sad conversation. Her family had moved in fall of last year, just an hour and a half move, not for a job, but they moved to be in a church that they had discovered online during the COVID world uh, that they appreciated and wanted to be a part of. And her husband was a software guy. He could work anywhere, so they moved to west of Orlando. Uh, But now uh, she reports to us that their pastor, church planter, small church, he had uh, gotten caught being in an affair, and his marriage was in trouble, and his ministry there was done. Didn't know if the church was going to survive or not. Then she went on to report to us how another pastor's wife, uh, a, a pastor with whom she was very close, had an affair with her husband's best friend. And he was a church planter, and that church plant may or may not survive. I mean, I listened to this, and I hung up the phone, and that was a little much for one conversation for me. I, I just, just wept. I was stunned as I was especially close to the second situation and knew well, well, every single party involved. It just kills me. I completely get how certain impulses and attractions, how powerful they can be. But seriously, how many dead bodies do we need to see before we learn? My, my memory verse from Proverbs 2, I have at least one from every chapter, but in chapter 2 it's this. For her house sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. And you can guess the context for who the her is there. Proverbs describes the enticed male as being like a bird about to step into a trap, like an ox being led to the slaughter. What is on the line here? Your walk with God, your family, your ministry, oh, that's all. <laughs> that's all. I, I think of those, uh, those are the most, those are the two most prevalent ways that I've seen people destroy their lives. But hey, plenty of people have, have done it without the thrills of sex and substance abuse. We have simply succumbed to our passions, our anger, our rage, strife, and jealousy. That's the words used in the New American Standard. It could be, it could be the explosion of a moment. As a sports fan, I think of Woody Hayes, Bobby Knight, more especially of Norman Dale of Hoosiers fame. 
okay? Uh, a button gets pushed and boom, there goes much for which you have labored. You can do it with your fist or you can do it with your words. Probably even more are destroyed by, by something that's more lingering, just an inner anger and hostility and jealousy that eats at the soul. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Bitterness, unforgiveness, unresolved feelings of vengeance and deprivation, these two, they can destroy a soul. So the Spirit warns us through Paul not to live in these things, but to do something radically different, which is set out before us in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. For 100 points, what is the oldest city in the United States? Not the first city, but the oldest city. In Florida, on the East Coast, St. Augustine is it. In Florida, we have St. Augustine, we have St. Petersburg, we have Port St. Lucie, we have St. Cloud, lots of saints around that state. Let's talk about the first one. There was once a mother named Monica. And she'd given her only son to God. She had prayed that he would know God, that he would serve Christ. But instead, he, he became an educated libertine. He had a live-in girlfriend. He was heavily into New Age religion. <laughs> he had thoroughly rejected his mother's faith, but she continued to pray for her son who could have been a poster boy for total depravity. And as she prayed, things only got worse. Her son was sent... <laughs> to a new academic assignment to the city of Milan, Italy, the only city in Italy I've ever been to. We stopped at the airport for about an hour and a half. So I've been to Milan, no other place in Italy, but that's where he was sent, and it was known as the Mecca for the debate. So there he went, far away, entrapped by a lifestyle of self-indulgence and false religion. So that's where he is. What are the odds of a man like that becoming a devout Christian like his mother had prayed he would. Well, there was really no hope of that, no hope, <laughs> but God. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, this great God one day led a curious college professor into a church in Milan just to hear the oratory of the famous pastor whose name was Ambrose, just to hear how the man could move an audience with his preaching. And there he heard more than a speech. There he heard a word that sounded strangely like home. The scholarly man was convicted of his sin and the debauchery of his life. And here we go to his own words in a book that he wrote called The Confessions. When a deep consideration had from the secret bottom of my soul drawn together and heaped up all my misery in the sight of my heart, there arose a mighty storm, bringing a mighty shower of tears 
which that I might pour forth wholly in its natural expressions. I rose from Olympias, his friend. Solitude was suggested to me as a fitter business for the business, or fitter, fitter place for the business of weeping. I cast myself down, I know not how, under a certain fig tree, giving full vent to my tears, and the floods of my eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice to thee. Remember not our former iniquities, for I felt that I was held by them. I sent up these sorrowful words, how long? How long? Tomorrow and tomorrow again. Why not now? Why not is there this hour and end to my uncleanness? So I, I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter condition of my heart. When lo, I heard from a neighboring house a voice as of a boy or a girl, I know not, chanting and oft repeating, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. So checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then I returned to the place where Olypius was sitting, for there had I laid the volume of the apostle when I arose thence. I seized, opened it, and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell. Wouldn't you know it, that passage was our text for this morning. And he read, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And then he came to the punchline in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and this man whose name came to be Saint Augustine, the famous bishop of Hippo, the preeminent theologian post-apostles in the first millennium of the church, said of that moment, and I quote, no further would I read, nor did I need, for instantly as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. And so we go back 13 chapters. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul again in verse 14 gives us the gospel. Here, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout Romans, we encounter that short couplet, the two words, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. In Christ, we find life. In Christ, we find righteousness. In Christ, we find acceptance. In Christ, we find hope. In Christ, we find peace. To say, put on Christ, is the same as saying, get in Christ. Yes, 
It is like putting on a robe of righteousness. It is like getting dressed in that which makes you acceptable. Galatians uses the same language, chapter, 20, chapter 3, verse 27. All of you who were baptized into Christ have done what? clothe yourselves with Christ. Even back in Isaiah, we encounter this picture of what salvation is. I'll rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of right salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And our, our hymns pick up this theme beautifully, especially the hymns of Charles Wesley, who writes, and we sang this morning, No condemnation, now I dread Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness or with righteousness divine. Another Charles Wesley verse says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. And that particular hymn ends with this line, which I've never, I've never sung before. Maybe you've encountered this. I haven't, Brooke. It said, Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice. Now bid thy ransomed ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus thy blood and righteousness. So hear me, brothers and sisters. In conversion, we put on... We dress our souls with Jesus and his righteousness. But listen to, Paul is speaking, Romans 13, to believers. We are exhorted to continually do this, to continually look unto Christ. Every morning when we awake, we dress ourselves, not simply with shirt and with shoes, but with our Savior. And remember, what we put on, what we put on a few minutes ago and the previous verse was what? The armor of light. Now we put on Jesus, and both are there to help us in the fight. We remember that the devil, that our sins have no claim on us at all anymore. We wear the uniformed of the redeemed, and it is it is our authority over the powers of darkness. By Christ, we walk in victory, and we frustrate the devil by reminding him of whose we are, and by giving him, listen, brothers and sisters, we give him no ammunition. This is where our passage ends. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Everything for Jesus, nothing for Satan. Say that with me. Everything for Jesus, nothing for Satan. Is there pornography in your house or on your computer? Get it out of there. Is there alcohol that leads you to sin? Pour it out. Are there relationships that entice you into the way of evil? Cut them off as much as you are able. Don't provide ammunition to the enemy of your souls. Another way Paul says this is with that little four-letter word, flee, F-L-E-E, flee it. Remember Joseph with the wife of the jailer? She seduces him, and he runs away <laughs> immodestly because he left his robe behind in her clutches, but he was that committed to getting away 
Fred Smith says about this story, there are some temptations you do not try to meditate your way out of. (laughs) You hit the road. You don't take the first puff of that joint. You don't take the first sip of that vodka. You don't take the first look at that loose woman. Been quoting a lot of 70s uh, pop culture today. It's my era. So now let me refer to Hee Haw. (laughs) (laughs) I'm told that I was related to Junior Samples. Uh, I can see a little bit. Hee Haw. Uh, A patient told old Doc Campbell, he said, Doc, I broke my arm in two places. And Doc Campbell slapped him and said, Don't go in them there places. (laughs) You may need a doctor like like that. That's right. Some places you don't go if you want to honor Christ, if you want to walk in his joy, if you want to bear witness. And here's the message. If you want to bear witness that he is good and he is great, and he is satisfying, then make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. One of the assignments Beth and I give couples getting married is to create a set of rules that will diminish the temptation towards adultery. And you can do the same thing with anger, with substances as well. You figure out, okay, that's, I don't want to end up there, so I'm, I'm going to stay way back here. I'm going to put barriers between there, where there's death, and where we are today. So everything for Jesus, nothing for Satan. When Augustine first put on Jesus, he had a lot of worldly habits to overcome, but his heart was taken up with a new love that led to a new life. And uh, you probably don't know a lot about this man, but probably the one quote from Augustine that you are most familiar with is where, again, he wrote in that book, The Confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are ever restless until they find their rest in thee. And in that good place of rest, the most powerful temptations are subdued, and victory in Jesus is secured. So, we offer to the devil nothing, and to Jesus, everything. Let's pray. (laughs) And so, Lord, we turn to you and moment of our need and recognize that the things Paul writes about in verse 13 have, have, have brought mayhem to many of our lives. Forgive us that we have given ourselves to the lust of the flesh. Forgive us that we have refused to forgive. And Lord, we turn to you today and, and we say, help cover us, clothe us with your righteousness, with your love, indeed with the beauty and perfection of our Savior. For those today, Lord, who came in undressed, 
(laughs) They're not wearing the robes of your righteousness when they entered this building today. I pray they would put them on now. Turning from those things that call for their devotion. Ripping away from the devil all that he has used to destroy them and giving you their all in confidence and hope that your grace is sufficient for our need. Lord, break those bonds that the enemy may still have in our lives. Give us insight what it looks like to leave no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust, to run from these things that have devastated so many lives before us, and to run to Christ. Awaken us tomorrow morning, indeed each morning, with this commitment to put on Jesus, to walk in his purity, and thus be ready for his return. And if that might be today, we're good with that. Give us readiness through faith in Jesus and his name. Amen.